The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. This is Pure Opelka. With Mike Opelka. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's a Friday, and I'm not sure what the heck is going on. There's some strangeness going out there in the Twitter universe. Our old buddy Skip Lacombe is apparently... I don't don't know what he's up to. That's all I can tell you. I don't think so. It's a mystery to me. But in the meantime, North Korea says Donald Trump is driving us to the brink of nuclear war. No, you're in your own car and you've got your own keys, Mr. Kim Jong-un, Mr. Dear Leader. It's just uh, take responsibility for your own actions, people. I, I don't believe we're on the brink. And, you know, it's talking about our, our um, question of the day, our vital question of the day, which relates to this. Who pulls the trigger first? of you believe we will, 31% of you believe North Korea will, 53%. We now have over a majority. 53% of you believe neither because it de-escalates and 8% can't decide, but you're worried. Now, here's the situation that we're now getting some word from uh, inside sources, not only are Russia and China working to try and prevent the conflict between us, But we are hearing that there are back-channel talks between the United States and the North Koreans, which is probably what should be going on. But uh, in in terms of what we've done in the past, there's been a general sense of appeasement with past administrations towards towards North Korea. There, um, There have been a series of of deals that have been struck over the years that uh, I think we need to be aware of because we know North Korea is not exactly uh, something or someone, a, a nation that will live up to its deals. For example, November 18th of 1994, President Clinton approved a plan to arrange more than $4 billion in energy aid to North Korea over the next decade in return for a commitment from North Korea to freeze and gradually dismantle its nuclear weapons development program. That was 1994. 23 years ago, we gave them $4 billion in energy aid. All right, so then let's fast forward to 2005, you know, after that 10 years. In uh, 2005, September 19th, North Korea agreed to end its nuclear weapons program in return for security, economic, energy benefits, potentially easing all those tensions with the U.S. after uh, a two-year, like, cooling-off period here, a standoff that we had with North Korea, because they wanted to build a a nuclear bomb. 
That was in the New York Times. Also in the New York Times, in October of, of 2007, North, agree, North Korea has agreed to disable all of its nuclear facilities by the end of the move, end of the year, in a move the Bush administration hailed as, uh, well, it's kind of special, right? As a model for how to deal with Iran and getting them to rein in their nuclear ambitions. So we went 1994 to 2005 to 2007. Let's go again to the New York Times in 2012. 2012. North Korea announced on Wednesday it would suspend nuclear weapons tests and uranium enrichments and allow international inspectors to monitor activities at its main reactor complex. This was a surprise announcement, which apparently had something to do with a diplomatic impasse that has allowed the country's nuclear program to continue for years without oversight. So they've been going on for years. That was three years ago. Where are we now? As many as 60 nuclear bombs in North Korea's hands. So it didn't happen overnight. I don't think it gets solved overnight either. But I do believe that the president's right to say we can't let a nuclear North Korea stand. They're just not, they don't work and play well with others. If we're going to treat them like, like uh, the kindergartners that they sound like, they don't work and play well with others. I just think that's kind of important to make note of. So, here's where we are. Most of you believing that nothing's going to happen, that it's going to de-escalate. And I hope you're right. I think we need to hope we're right on this one. I think we need to hope that the people we have in charge actually are doing what we're paying them to do. So... Uh, I really believe I really believe we're going to resolve it. And I sincerely believe, as I said at the beginning of the show, and I said with Buck Sexton, who if you missed the first hour of the program, Buck Sexton, whose show is now live on this network at 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Uh, Buck Sexton uh, and I talked about this in depth, and I told him I believe, as I, I've been saying for days now, that Trump, Mattis, and Tillerson are working this and they're triangulating around Kim Jong-un. And Trump is out there distracting him while Tillerson's working diplomacy and McMaster is making sure that God forbid, or Mattis is making sure that God forbid we need to defend ourselves or take steps that, that we will and we can and we're ready. So I believe this is all coming together in terms of th this to me is the strongest the Trump administration has looked since uh, Donald Trump gave the OK to launch the cruise missiles against the Syrians and their, their uh, gas attacks on, on their own people. To me, it's absolutely the best thing we've seen. So I give him high marks on this one. Now, is this enough to save a potential change in uh, control of the House and the Senate in 2018 as we're rounding the corner on just about 14 months before the next election? I don't know. I really don't know. 
And I mentioned uh, that earlier in this week that we talked about how how ironic it would be that because of the way California's districts are laid out, it actually could be California that saves control of the House for the GOP. There are a bunch of districts that are fairly so strong in the red zone that you're not going to be able to flip them. The Democrats are working overtime right now to lay out scenarios where they can turn red districts blue. And they're working pretty hard, but there are nine districts in California that are so solidly red, that looks like it would almost make flipping the house impossible, which does wonders for keeping that giant gavel out of the hands of Nancy Pelosi. And one of those things that I think is uh, really strong, really strong. And that, but now the Senate. As you know, we have a 52 to 48 majority in the Senate. Not, not big enough to do anything, apparently, if you look at the last few months. But in the Senate, there are probably 10 seats that could be flipped. Now, the Senate doesn't do what the House does. Every two years, pretty much a third of the Senate rolls over. And depending on how it rolls over you have one side more vulnerable than the other. And in this case, I believe it's 24 Democratic seats are up and I think eight Republican seats. So that means there are a whole lot more Democrats who could be on thin ice this year. And if that's the case, and some of those seats flip, you could be talking about either a gigantic shift that would push more power towards the GOP, possibly even that 60-vote threshold that the Democrats had when they shoved Obamacare down our throats. Or it could mean that the Democrats could take back control of the Senate. I want to get into that. I want to look at a few of these seats. I know it's wonky, it's geeky, but I think it's important. And we'll do that next on Pure Opelka. You're listening to Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Pure Opelka. Keeping an eye on stuff uh, as we're getting ready to wander into this uh, discussion about the Senate, which I think is important, and seats that could flip in 2018, but also also watching a report that says apparently the North Koreans have put their civil defense people on alert. That's always good news, isn't it? Isn't that great, gang, that the... North Koreans have put their civil defense people on alert. No, not not good. Uh, I, I'm thinking this is just uh, their their response to our response because I don't think it's that big of a deal. After all, I I agree with the majority of you. I think we're going to uh, we're actually going to ratchet it down and cooler. Heads will prevail, and uh, there'll be some statement. But again, I, I don't know if we're going to have the uh, the actual deal like the ones we we had. 
in the past where North Korea says, oh, yeah, we're going to suspend our program. We're going to dismantle our program. We're going to do that. So um, I'm hoping for a ratcheting down and a uh, diminished rhetoric and nobody fires at anybody. But I really don't like North Korea having nuclear weapons. Now, that said, waiting to hear from a lot of uh, a lot of senators, it seems like most of the people rushing to the microphones, other than the occasional Lindsey Graham statement and the occasional John McCain statement, are Democrats who are losing their minds. Saying that we're going to, oh, Trump's rhetoric, Trump's rhetoric. Why is he siding with the Russians and thanking them for sending home our diplomats? All the drama that we're seeing. But I'd like to see, I'd like to, I'd like to see the Senate change in 2018 and get into the hands of a stronger Republican Party. But that would mean we'd have to get some better candidates in there. Now, I think the Democrats are really quite vulnerable. And I think uh, I think there's actually a chance that if you if you really played your cards right, if you really got strong candidates, you could see the Republicans getting close to 60. Now, you have a few problems like Arizona and Nevada. Those are the ones that stand out that you actually could could lose a seat in Arizona and Nevada. And God knows what's going to happen. I, I hate to even bring this up, but John McCain's not healthy. John McCain, I, I believe, at any, any juncture, because of his age and the cancer that he has, might decide that it's just time for him to relax a little bit. The guy has fought so many battles in his life. I don't know why you would want to, unless, unless this is all you feel comfortable doing. But I look at Nevada and Arizona as possible sore points for the GOP. So if you lose both of those, now you're down to 50. But then, if we're to be optimistic, and we're, we're, we are to look at places like Indiana where Donnelly, the Democrat, could be quite vulnerable, especially if Mike Pence retains his popularity in that state, which I think he's doing. I think you could see a a GOP candidate move into Indiana and really help that economy and help the Republicans in the Senate. I think in Ohio, Sherrod Brown who has been a growling thorn in, in the GOP side for, well, a better part of a year now since the convention and now the election, I think Sherrod Brown could be at risk. In Florida, I think Bill Nelson could be at risk. Imagine turning Ohio and Florida. And then you look at places like West Virginia, where Joe Manchin is in a state that's red, whose governor just turned to a a red governor from a blue governor. And Manchin is a guy who stood by the Democrats all during the battle over Obamacare. Could this be time for Manchin either to switch parties? Or would Joe Manchin 
be one of the early victims of this change. See, I, I think that's, that's a, a big possible deal. You get a strong candidate in West Virginia. Manchin's an incumbent. It's hard to beat an incumbent. But the, the leanings, and again, Governor Justice switched parties two weeks ago with Donald Trump by his side. I'm telling you, Joe Manchin, who says uh, he doesn't really, well, I can't say what he said. I'd be thrown off the air. Now, there's a bunch of different people who could challenge Manchin, one of those being, uh, being uh, Evan Jenkins, a guy who did switch parties. And there's, a, there's a, an attorney general who could, who could be uh, in there, too. So we're seeing. Now, in Arizona, in Arizona, we mentioned Arizona could be a, a trouble spot with with uh, Jeff Flake. He's got to get through a primary. And there's a lot of money pushing back against Flake. So uh, Democrats, they're, they're putting up a couple of different people. The uh, mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton, is in there. And uh, another congressional representative, uh, Sinema, Representative Sinema, wants a shot. She could give... Uh, any Republican a tough call there. But Flake has voted with the president on some big issues. So he might have the power of the president behind him. Now, if we go to some other strange states, um, for example, I'm not going to discount uh, any chance that Kid Rock has, but I'm just dubious of that in Michigan as many times as I'd like to see that change. But a place like Missouri, where Claire McCaskill has uh, been pretty comfortable there, but I think part of the party is, is pulling away from people like McCaskill. Uh, Trump won Missouri, and um, Roy Blunt was reelected there. But the Republicans could make a dent in Missouri. So I'm, I'm looking at Missouri... Indiana, West Virginia, Montana, North Dakota, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Florida. If the GOP was able to go into those states and flip each one of those, and then maybe hang on, hang on in Arizona, and hang on in Nevada, and maybe a couple other outliers, that would give you 60 votes in the Senate. And if you've got 60 votes in the Senate, you'd be able to do just about anything, wouldn't you? You'd be able to change the health care in this country, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's exactly how it happened for the Democrats in 2008. And that's how Obamacare got shoved down our throats. I know it's a long ways off. I'm just throwing out some nerdy head stuff when we get back we'll have some of the silly stuff come on back after the break you're listening to pure opelka with mike opelka on the blaze radio network 
listening to Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Pure Opelka. You know, it's almost back to school time, isn't it? <laughs> almost, almost time for back to school and all those back to school commercials. Well, the new school in New York City, it's a, it's a special school in New York City. Artsy fartsy. They have put out a special memo from the Office of Student Health Services on the topic of microaggressions. Yes, this is the equivalent of handing out a pamphlet to everybody who comes to school, and this is an effort to help the snowflakes survive in New York City. Let me tell you something. If you're going to school in New York City, you've already gone through a tougher boot camp than most of the other armies around the world. If you're able to get to a class in New York City, and the new school is located right in the heart of Manhattan, then you've already passed some incredible survival tests, just if you're riding the subway. So to think that they'd have to put out this little guide to microaggressions, it just irks me. What is a microaggression? Microaggression shows up as brief and commonplace verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities. (laughs) Environmental indignities. Whether intentional or not, these indignities communicate a hostile, derogatory, or negative slight or insult towards a targeted group. Lately, joining the targeted groups of the microaggression, the plus-sized among us. I know, I know. We all fight the battle. All of us feel like we could lose 5 or 10 or 50 or whatever poundage. But now, the new school even points out that these, the chairs, the you know the desks that are all in one? They have the the seat connected to the desktop and you just kind of slide in and put your notebook down or your laptop down on the on the desk. Yeah, they're saying that that those those standard size desks now they're a microaggression to plus sized people. I'm not kidding you. And the new school has put out this this online pamphlet to help you recognize, help you apologize, and help you realize your privilege. I'm not kidding. There's an actual section entitled, What if I'm a microaggressor? Congratulations, you realize that you microaggressed. Although it's still unacceptable, recognizing and admitting uh, oppressive language, behavior, and thoughts is not the norm and is necessary to practice anti-oppression. It also feels good to admit our faults and to seek to change them. The first thing you do is apologize. And there's even a guide. You can click on the button on how to apologize. And these come from the keys to constructing an effective apology from Psychology Today. I can't believe we actually have a guide on how to apologize. 
If you're genuinely sorry, I think it comes from the heart. But here are the keys. Here are the six steps to an effective apology. Number one, a clear I'm sorry statement. An expression of regret for what happened. Isn't that kind of folded into the I'm sorry? Number three, an acknowledgement that social norms or expectations were violated. Again, isn't that part of the apology? Number four, this is step four. An empathy statement, acknowledging the full impact of our actions on the other person. Number five, a request for forgiveness. And number six, an explanation of what you'll do to prevent it from happening again. My God, we're terrible people. Apologize. Tell them I'm sorry it happened. I will work to make sure it doesn't happen again. And let's move on. We have become the wimpiest, whiniest bunch of people on the planet. And I cannot believe that we actually have to have a section that teaches people how to apologize when they're going to the new school on West 12th Street in Midtown Manhattan. I didn't even click on the realizing your privilege part of things. But if you want to do it too, I should tweet out a link to this. And this is, just so you know, to realize your privilege was adapted and borrowed, as they say, from everydayfeminism.org. Privilege is the other side of oppression. A set of unearned benefits given to people who fit into a specific social group. Folks who do not fit into certain privileged categories, and then they list them for us, white, male, straight, Christian, White, male, straight, Christian. So those are all privileged categories. So if, you've, if you are white, if you are male, if you are straight and you are Christian, you've got four stars of privilege, don't you? Well, if, if you don't fit into those categories, you face oppression because their identities due to all of the ways society disenfranchises those identities and lived experiences. For example, same-sex couples denied access to adopt children. Well, that's not happening anymore. Or public spaces. That's not happening anymore. Or resources. That's not happening anymore. They make daily life harder for oppressed individuals or deny them rights and opportunities afforded to others. No. This is why no one's learning. Because we are obsessed with the apology culture. We're obsessed with trying to solve problems that don't exist. We're obsessed with stupid stuff. I wonder what the person in charge of dealing with the microaggressions and putting up all of the news and information about microaggressions, I wonder what that person makes. Because, you know, we read... We read earlier this year, and this happened earlier this year, I think it was April of this year, that we learned Clemson University in South Carolina spent more than $25,000 on diversity education and training for the faculty. There was a PowerPoint presentation that faculty members had to go and sit through, and once they, they completed it, they were offered um, mugs and T-shirts 
as a reward for completing the diversity or inclusion training, diversity education training. And there's a, a person whose job it is to be in charge of this diversity and inclusion program. And after I read this, I remember reading this, and inside this, this PowerPoint, there's actually a presentation that talks about the fact that if someone's late for class, you can't, you can't call them out for it because, because that's racist. Can you imagine? I'm going to tell you a little story. I was cost an entire grade level. I was studying classical literature and translation at Trinity University. Yes, I know. It's a little bit of a heady subject for a, a bottom dweller like myself. But I studied classical literature and translation. And unfortunately, that class was at 11 o'clock in the morning. But at 10.30 every day, Jeopardy was on. I'm not kidding you. And we had a fierce Jeopardy tournament in the dorm. Now, the dorm was halfway across the damn campus. But I wasn't about to give up a Jeopardy tournament. So I would stay until the final Jeopardy answer, complete it, and then sprint to my classical literature and translation class. And most days I would make it just about on time. But it was virtually every day that semester, that fall semester, I was the last person in class, the person who was sneaking in as the professor was closing the door, as Dr. Krieger was closing the door. And at the end of the semester, he asked me, can I, um, can I ask you why you plan the class you have before this uh, to be so tight that you're here virtually late every day? And I said, I don't have a class before this one, not realizing that I should have made something up. I told him, I, I don't have a class before this one. He goes, then why are you late? Every day you're late. Why? And I told him the truth. I told him that Jeopardy was on and we had a wicked tournament every day in the dorm. And he stared at me and he shook his head and he said, you're, you're kidding, right? I said, no. No, it's, a, it's America's favorite answer and question game, and we actually play, and we kind of, we might have been betting beer money on it. I, I'm just saying, we didn't have the electronics you people have today. And Dr. Krieger took me aside after the class that day, and he said, I appreciate your honesty, but I'm going to dock you an entire grade point for the semester because Jeopardy, a game show, was more important to you than classical literature in my class. Had I known that my tardiness and the punishment I received could have been called racism, I might have had a higher GPA that semester. But no, that was not the case because we didn't have the kinds of social justice warrior action that we have today. We didn't have the kind of people out there standing up for people like me just didn't exist. Now, before we went on the air today, I reached out to Clemson University to ask them if, in fact, this program is still in place, if, in fact, they are still teaching the faculty that tardiness to class, if you bring it up, is racism. 
the department in charge of the the uh, training, the diversity training, where the guy earns, I think it's well over $250,000 a year for, for forcing these classes on the teachers. Uh, they would not respond and sent me to the media office. And the media office told me they were going to have to look into it. I think it's still in force. As a matter of fact, when we come back, I'll play you Chuck Woolery's statement on Clemson University that came out just yesterday. That's next on Pure Opelka. You're listening to Pure Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Pure Opelka with Mike Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, before we get out of here, just one more time, I want to remind you, I want to suggest to you, I want to strongly recommend you, you reach out to Relief Factor. I was having a, um, a serious doubt about whether or not I was going to be able to continue my active lifestyle. And uh, in April, I started taking Relief Factor, which was designed to reduce inflammation in our joints. It's a combination of botanicals and wild-harvested fish oil. And that combination works with your body to reduce the inflammation, and inflammation is what causes pain. And I had pain in my knees and in my hips and my lower back. And it's from all the marathoning and training I did years ago. But in, in eight days after I started taking Relief Factor, I noticed positive results. And 80% of the people who get the three-week quick start pack reorder it. So I suspect they're having the same results. The three-week quick start pack is $19.95. It's like cheaper than a cup of coffee a day. So why wouldn't you try it? Go to relieffactor.com. Pick up the phone and call them at 800-500-8384. 800-500-8384. It is Relief Factor. Over a million sold, and 80% of those people are picking it up again. All right, I hope it works for you. I, I promised you something from, um, from our buddy Chuck Woolery. Chuck is part of uh, Blunt Force Truth on the internets, and he was talking about the Clemson thing yesterday, too. This is what he had to say. Just when you thought college campuses couldn't get any more socialist or stupid, Clemson University comes along and lowers the bar even more. The new diversity program says it's racist to hold someone accountable for being late. According to their PowerPoint presentation, time is experienced differently based on culture. We need to reorganize and respect these differences, not respect the time of people waiting for someone to arrive. They claim that punctuality is a specific trait only possessed by, you guessed it, White people, which I'm pretty sure is an actual racist remark in itself. Professors it, that complete the training... It is an actual racist remark in itself. Chuck Woolery is uh, scheduled to join us next week, so I'm very excited about that. We're going to talk about blunt force truth with Chuck sometime next week. He's a guy that I ran into years ago at CPAC in Washington, D.C., and I'll be happy to have him on. Uh, we're going to be here tomorrow morning starting at 6 o'clock. I hope you will be here. 
I have a bunch of stories I didn't get to today, some pretty stupid, silly stories. So Saturday morning, 6 a.m. on the Blaze Radio Network. It's going to be a tad less serious unless all hell breaks loose in North Korea, which I don't think it will. I have faith in the big guy upstairs and, of course, the Twitter poll that agrees with me. Testudo, my friends. Testudo. Pure Opelka with Michael Opelka on the Blaze Radio Network.